This is Books of Titans, the podcast dedicated to the influences of influencers. The books that have helped shape prominent inventors, business leaders, athletes, intellectuals, scientists, and others. We'll talk about what makes these books such classics and at least attempt to have an intelligent discussion about what makes them so important and influential. Hello, this is Eric Rostad coming to you right outside of Nashville, Tennessee. Today, I'm going to cover the Gulag Archipelago by Alexander Solzhenitsyn. This was my final book for 2019, and it was book 52 out of 52 total books. This episode will consist of three segments. The first will be an introduction to the book, the author, who suggested it, and my initial reaction. The second segment, I will highlight some of the most fascinating parts of this book. And the final segment, segment three, is the one thing, my one key takeaway from the Gulag Archipelago. So on to segment one. The author is Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He was born in Russia in 1918 and died there as well in 2008. In World War II, he was a decorated commander in the Red Army. So the Red Army is the Soviet Army, and he was in Germany. He was fighting the Nazis. While, while doing that, he was corresponding with a friend of his, and in one of the letters that he wrote to his friend, he criticized Stalin's handling of the war. So Stalin was in charge of Russia at the time, and that was a no-no. You didn't say anything bad about the, the leader. And so Solzhenitsyn was arrested and imprisoned in the Gulag for eight years, from 1945 to 1953. After that, he was exiled. And during exile, he started writing. He wrote both fiction and nonfiction and was uh, quite good at it. And so in 1970, he won the Nobel Prize in Literature. That did not endear him to the Soviet leadership. And in 1971, the KGB attempted an assassination on Solzhenitsyn. It failed. Solzhenitsyn got quite sick from that, but uh, but he did survive and was just kicked out of the Soviet Union then in 1974. He spent some time in the United States and gave a famous speech at Harvard, which I will, I will uh, see if I can find that and link to that in the show notes. Uh, he was he was booed at Harvard, uh, which was uh, quite quite a shame. And he then returned to Russia in 1994 after communism fell in 89 and lived out the rest of his days there, dying in 2008. So what is a gulag and what is a gulag archipelago? Well, a gulag is actually the acronym for the government agency that was in charge of the forced labor camp system in, in Soviet Russia. So Gulag would, would be, it's, it's an acronym. So it'd be like KGB or CIA or, or some other acronym. Uh, but, but over time, it's, it's, it's gotten the, uh, people associate that with forced labor camp system. So people use the term Gulag, and, and I'll be using Gulag in, in that sense in, in, for the rest of this episode as, as a forced labor prison. The Gulag system was started under Lenin and continued under Stalin into Khrushchev and all the way up to Gorbachev. There were 53 total camps and then 423 labor colonies that made made up this this Gulag. And if if you get the 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 book, uh, it'll likely contain a map in the front of the book that that shows where all of these gulags were. And so it's a map of Russia and then also uh, Kazakhstan and, and I believe some, a few other countries had had um, prisons as well as part of this system. But it just, you look at that map and it's, it's astonishing because it just blankets the entire country. 
and they were all over the place. They were in every major city because uh, it, there, there would have to be kind of holding areas when, when someone was arrested. And then the prisoners were transferred to these these uh, gulag, the, the camps, all the time. And so they would spend some time in one and then go to another. And so that... Uh, it, it, that's how it got the name the Gulag Archipelago, and, that, and uh, that's what Solzhenitsyn calls it, because it's it's an archipelago is, is is a group of islands, and he viewed these camps as as islands, and but they were all connected in in an archipelago uh, to where you'd be going, uh, prisoners would be going to to the different ones of these, and what's also really weird and strange is that these were these were in plain sight in a way the the gulags the the prisons were in in the sense that uh people who were not prisoners uh, they would know that they were there i mean people were just disappearing and ending up in these in these places but they were tra- the people were transferred by train and so normal civilians are taking the train but then in some of the cars of the train it, they're full of prisoners but those particular cars of the train are, they look like r- luggage cars. And whenever there's a stop, the guards get out, they, they go around those, those luggage things, but the prisoners aren't allowed to make any sounds. And so it's just this weird thing of like the gulag hiding in plain sight. The prisoners are there, the gulag system is there, but you're not really supposed to know about it and people aren't really talking about it. So... Gulag was was mainly there for political prisoners or, or people with suspicious ideas, and so that's why Solzhenitsyn got in for that letter that he wrote against against Stalin. As for the number of people who were part of the Gulag, uh, it's estimated that there were 18 million prisoners over the years that wound up in in the Gulag, and uh, up to up to 1.8 million of those 18 million people dying, uh, being murdered while they were in the, in the camps. And that could have been just from being shot, uh, from starvation, from, um, freezing to death, that sort of thing. So the, the Gulag Archipelago book, it was written in, in Russian and, uh, translated into English and it is now required reading in Russian schools. Putin called this book much needed and it is it is a three volume book. The first volume is seven hundred and four pages, next one seven hundred and fifty two, and the last one six hundred and eight. So that's a total of two thousand and sixty four pages, which is longer than the version of the Bible that that I have, and that is going to be book number one on my list next year. So this is a big book, but I did not read the three volume set. I read the abridged version and that was done by Edward Erickson and it was sanctioned by Solzhenitsyn himself. He, he wanted there to be a shorter version of this book. And what's really cool is that uh, this one is 470 pages. So it is nowhere near the 2064 pages of the full three volume set. But in the abridged version, Edward Erickson, the abridger, he notes where he's taken things out so he'll he'll show a chapter and then describe in like two sentences what is in that chapter but the full chapter is not there so if you want to if, you, if you're really interested in this you could get the three volume book but what I, what I loved is that you actually knew what had been taken out to some degree where in and he would he would talk about that and and highlight what what was what had been taken out. I also got the version of the book that had the foreword by Jordan Peterson. So this came out uh, last year, 2018, uh, as part of an anniversary of, of the book. And 
Uh, I, I was just curious. I, I had heard uh, Jordan Peters, Peterson talk about uh, the honor of, of doing the foreword for this book, and I, and I was curious what he said. So I had to order this one from the United Kingdom. Uh, I, I live in the United States, so uh, it wasn't that big of a deal. I, I, could, I could order it through Amazon, but it, it was probably like 20 or $30, and, uh, and, but I wanted to have this version of the book. So again, it was the abridged version, and it, it had the foreword by by Jordan Peterson. I, I recommend this version, uh, not, not necessarily the, the forward by Jordan Peterson, but the, the er, Edward Erickson abridge, abridgment. And you can get that in, in a number of different volumes. You don't have to get it from the, uh, the UK, but, uh, short and sweet. And, uh, it, 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 it even had sections where I thought this could have been removed. So I, I can't Im- imagine reading all three volumes of it. As for who suggested the book, uh, my mother-in-law did. I've been married over 10 years now, and uh, uh, in that entire time, my mother-in-law has, has always talked about this book, talked about this author, and, and suggested this book to me. Before that, I'd never heard of the book. Uh, some of the podcasts I listen to now, they, they mention this book quite often. Uh, that would be Econ Talk, and then I've heard Jordan Peterson mention, mention this one quite a bit as well. I read it from November 29th through December 10th. So that was uh, 12 days, 407 page book, 39 pages per day, took me 17 hours, 56 minutes and 42 seconds. As for my initial reaction, this is one of those books that it's, it's on another level. It, it, you, you start reading it and you know that this is not going to be like anything else you've ever read. It might be similar, like to say Man's Search for Meaning or Narrative of the Life of Frederick Douglass, but this, this is just, it's on another level. And one of the main reasons is it's a book that is forged through suffering. And it's a book about the triumph of the human soul amidst devastating circumstances. Those books that are forged through suffering have a lot to tell us. We can learn a lot from these, and it's like the lessons are are packed in in a shorter amount of time. It might take someone a, a full lifetime or, or multiple lifetimes to to gain the wisdom that is is obtained through intense suffering like this. As for who should read the book, everybody. I'm serious. Everybody read this book. Maybe if you're you're super young or or extremely sensitive, you. you may not want to, or if you're young, just wait, wait a while. But this is an important book. Everyone should read this book. Russia has made it so that it is required reading in schools. This happened in Russia. It's required reading there. It should be required reading everywhere. There's a very famous quote from this book. And it goes like this, if only it were all so simple, if only there were evil people somewhere insidiously committing evil deeds, and it were necessary only to separate them from the rest of us and to destroy them. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. But the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. Solzhenitsyn does not allow us to view good and evil as only being on one side or the other. Rather, the potential is in all of us. And that is a truly remarkable thing to write about after suffering in a gulag for simply stating opinions about a, a ruler and, and his handling of a war. It'd be very convenient and completely justifiable for Solzhenitsyn to write about the evil of the Soviet gulag system. And he does that, and it was truly and utterly evil. 
but he attacks some of our most famous authors, people like Dickens and Shakespeare, because he says their portrayal of evil was too simple. Here's what he says. But when the great world literature of the past, Shakespeare, Schiller, Dickens, inflates and inflates images of evildoers of the blackest shades, it seems somewhat farcical and clumsy to our contemporary perception. The trouble lies in the way these classic evildoers are pictured. They recognize themselves as evildoers, and they know their souls are black. And they reason, I cannot live unless I do evil. But no, that's not the way it is. To do evil, a human being must first of all believe that he's doing good. Or else that it's a well-considered act in conformity with natural law. Fortunately, it is in the nature of the human being to seek a justification for his actions. Shakespeare's evildoers stopped short at a dozen corpses because they had no ideology. Ideology, that is what gives evildoing its long-sought justification and gives the evildoer the necessary steadfastness and determination. So the truly evil think that what they are doing is good, and they are helped along in that by their ideology. So we may naturally say that when that the gulag system, the guards were, were guided by ideology that stated that these political prisoners in the gulag needed to be punished and to the utmost and that what they were doing was good because of their political ideology that they believed in. They were the evil ones. But Solzhenitsyn does not allow you to then take that the innocent prisoners in the camps were the good guys in the story. He doesn't allow you to say the guards were the bad guys, the evil guys, and the, the, the innocent prisoners were the good guys. Or even that he was a good guy. The camps were, were actually set up to pit person against pit person and prisoner against prisoner and one way they would do this so like instead of just handing out food in an in assembly line type of of thing where everyone got the same rations they would just throw out food in the into the middle and then everyone would would have to just go and fight for it so prisoners would have to steal from each other uh other prisoners would steal from the elderly knowing that they would probably die if they didn't get that food uh, they would kill others to get uh, things that, that those people had. And so the, the, the whole system was set up to, to try to, to get people to, to do evil against another person. But, but the point is that there were prisoners that were, that were bad. They were stealing. They were killing. Uh, it wasn't that the, the prisoners were the good people in the story and the, the guards were the bad people. It, it goes back to that quote, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. And this this is where the this is where things get interesting because not every prisoner was like that. Not every prisoner was was bad stealing from others. Uh not every prisoner was good, but there were some prisoners that that rose above that were that were a different sort. And that's where this book got really interesting. It it answer, is answered a question that I've had my whole life. And that is this, who is the type of person who survives in the gulag? Uh, most of my life, I didn't really know about the gulags until, well, really until this book. I mean, just knew a little bit. So the question for me more was uh, maybe a, a Nazi concentration camp. I was, I was more familiar with, with World War II and, and Germany and, and Nazi concentration camps. So what, what type of a person would survive that? Or, or a torture situation, or, or, or a kidnapping, or a POW situation. What, what is the kind of person that can survive that intense situation? And first of all, we just need to acknowledge that it's the lucky. 
Uh, Viktor Frankl in Man's Search for Meaning said that the best of us did not make it. And there are countless times in Gulag Archipelago where uh, guards with Tommy guns just shoot at random. And so, you know, it, it, to some to some level, to survive something like that, you're just you're just plain lucky. You you didn't get sent to the to the side going to the gas chambers in in Nazi concentration camps. You didn't get shot in the head right away. You uh, were allowed to work for a period, and and you somehow made it through. So first off, it's the lucky. But after that, what 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 is the type of person that makes it through? Solzhenitsyn said it's the, the free person and the uncorrupted person. So how is someone free in the gulag? How is someone free in prison? So I want to read a few quotes where, where he digs into this a little deeper. And the first is just how to have the right mentality if you are in this situation or if, if you're wind up in prison or in in a gulag. From the moment you go to prison, you must put your cozy past firmly behind you. At the very threshold, you must say to yourself, my life is over. A little little early to be sure, but there's nothing to be done about it. I shall never return to freedom. I am condemned to die now or a little later, but later on in truth, it will be even harder. And so the sooner the better. I no longer have any property whatsoever. For me, those I love have died and for them, I have died. From today on, my body is useless and alien to me. And here's the key. Only my spirit and my conscience remain precious and important to me. Only my spirit and my conscience remain precious and important to me. Confronted by such a prisoner, the interrogator will tremble. Only the man who has renounced everything can win that victory. Later on, he says... Those people became corrupted in camp who had already been corrupted out in freedom. Because people are corrupted in freedom too, sometimes even more effectively than in camp. Another quote, When you have ceased to be afraid of threats and are not chasing after rewards, you become the most dangerous character in the owl-like view of the bosses. Because what hold do they have on you? So here we get in again something that has come up in so many of these books of Titans books. It's, uh, I, I guess the best way to describe it is, is uh, the daily habits of, of, of who are you becoming on a daily basis. And that quote of, those people became corrupted in camp who had already been corrupted out in freedom. The ty- You're going to be the type of person that can survive a gulag or a, or a camp or some horrible situation if you're becoming the person that can deal with it now. If you're making the hard decisions now, if you're not letting yourself become corrupted now when things might be better. So it's not it's not that you get to the gulag and then you automatically become this certain type of person. It's making that decision now, like today now, and your next decision having that go in a certain direction. And this is where we can relate. It's who you are now. It's, it's outside of prison that determines what you will be like in prison. And this reminded me of another book from this year's reading list, and that was Mere Christianity by C.S. Lewis. And I'm going to read this section. I highlighted this in the, the episode as well uh, on Mere Christianity. But here, here it goes. I would much rather say that every time you make a choice, you are turning the central part of you, 
the part of you that chooses into something a little different from what it was before. In taking your life as a whole with all of your innumerable choices, all your life long you are slowly turning the central thing either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature, either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or else one that is in a state of war and hatred with God and with its fellow creatures and with itself. To be the one kind of creature is heaven. That is, it is joy and peace and knowledge and power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. Each of us at each moment is progressing to the one state or the other. That is such a phenomenal quote and really puts it into perspective here and ties into what Solzhenitsyn is saying. Those people that had become corrupted in camp who had already been corrupted out in freedom. It is those daily decisions going one way or the other. Read another quote by Solzhenitsyn here. This one is a reiteration of the quote that I started off in this section of the dividing line of good and evil. It was granted to me to carry away from my prison years on my bent back, which nearly broke beneath its load, this essential experience, how a human being becomes evil and how good. In the intoxication of youthful successes I had, felt myself to be infallible, and I was therefore cruel. In the surfeit of power, I was a murderer and an oppressor. In my most evil moments, I was convinced that I was doing good, and I was well supplied with systematic arguments. And it was only when I would lay there on rotting prison straw that I sensed within myself the first stirrings of good. Gradually, it was disclosed to me that the line separating good and evil passes not through states— nor between classes, nor between political parties either, but right through every human heart and through every, through all human hearts. This line shifts inside us. It oscillates with the years. And even within hearts overwhelmed by evil, one small bridgehead of good is retained. And even in the best of all hearts, there remains an unuprooted small corner of evil. Later on, he said, if my life had turned out differently, might I myself not have become just such an executioner? It is a dreadful question if one really answers it honestly. This same section, he says, And that is why I turn back to the years of my imprisonment, and I say sometimes to the astonishment of those about me, Bless you, prison. I nourished my soul there. What an incredible thing to say. What an incredible tie-in with the dividing line of good and evil. Every time he had a decision to go one way or the other in prison, not every time, but he was going in the direction of, of the good. He nourished his soul there. Can you imagine saying that after being in the gulag for eight years? I nourished my soul there. Now into segment three, and the one thing, my one key takeaway from this amazing book. And I'm going to need to set this one up a little bit. Uh, A little more than halfway through this book, we come into contact with a Dr. Boris Nikolaevich Kornfeld. And Solzhenitsyn is in the 
in a hospital at this point. He's getting treated for for something. Um, he had Solzhenitsyn had had a tumor and he had cancer uh, at different points in his life. And I, I believe he was in in the hospital for for this at at this point. And he's still within the gulag, um, but um, he is getting treated for this. And and the doctor there is also a a prisoner. And um, he starts talking to this doctor and. Here's what uh, Dr. Kornfeld has to say. On the whole, do you know, I've become convinced that there is no punishment that comes to us in this life on earth, which is undeserved. Superficially, it can have nothing to do with what we are guilty of in actual fact. But if you go over your life with a fine-tooth comb and ponder it deeply, you will always be able to hunt down the transgression of yours for which you have now received this blow. End quote. So Dr. Kornfeld has this conversation with Solzhenitsyn. Dr. Kornfeld goes, goes to bed and does not make it to the next day. He is killed in his sleep. Someone bashes his head in. And so those are, are his last words on earth, what I, what I just read. And it, and it shakes Solzhenitsyn, and he thinks about it deeply. And he, it leads him to ask the question, why do the evil prosper? And here's how he, he addresses that. And the only solution to this would be that the meaning of earthly existence lies not, as we have grown to use thinking, in prospering, but in the development of the soul. From that point of view, our torturers have been punished most horribly of all. They are turning into swine. They are departing downward from humanity. From that point of view, punishment is inflicted on those whose development holds out hope. Punishment, but whose? I went into reading this book thinking I'd be learning about the punishments that the prisoners received in the gulag. That I'd be learning about uh, the gulag system and, and how horrible it was. And I did. And, and it was awful. And I, I will remember the things I read in this book for the rest of my life. The things done to prisoners. The, the, the horrible, horrible things in this book. I will, I will always remember that. But this is why this is my one thing. I did not expect to read about a deeper level of punishment for the guards. For if the meaning of existence is prospering, or is happiness, then the guards were winning and the prisoners were not prospering. But instead, if the meaning of existence is the development of the soul, then flip everything around. The guards are actually losing their souls. They are slowly but surely departing from the meaning of existence, and they are being punished. The development of the soul takes place on a decision-by-decision basis. That is where the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. What a profound idea. That is my one thing. Whose punishment? Who was being punished here? By all appearances, the prisoners were being punished, but look at it a different way, and the guards were the ones being punished. Wow. This book does not exist without the soul. It is a story of the men and women who survived the gulag because of their souls. Yes, some people survived the gulag by stealing and becoming informers, but they were punished in other ways at, at the soul level. So to recap this book, it is a short and concise version of the three-volume full set. I recommend reading this one. If you, are, if you really want to go deep, get the, the three-volume set. 
but uh, this one packs a punch. If you are even super short on time, still please buy this book and look for the chapter called The Ascent. This book is worth just that chapter alone. I mean, the the whole book is amazing, but that one chapter set it apart uh, of, of so many other books. It, it is just a book that is out of this world. It will challenge you. It will, it will encourage you. It will, it will challenge your ideas of pursuing happiness as an ultimate means. It will pursue your ideology that you have. It, it, will, it will challenge your idea of evil people being out there and you being the good person and you having the right ideas. And it will show you that no, in fact, the line dividing good and evil cuts through the heart of every human being. That's going to do it for this episode. Thank you for listening. I'd love to hear from you. You can email me at eric at booksoftitans.com. That's eric with a K, so E-R-I-K at Books of Titans. Let me know what you thought of this episode. Uh, if you've read The Gulag Archipelago, I'd, I'd love to hear uh, your thoughts on the book as well. That's one of the reasons I started this project. You can follow Books of Titans on Instagram or Twitter. And also, just know that the website is stock full of resources to help you find books and to create a reading list. I'll be back next week. I'm going to discuss the one thing from each of the 52 books on my 2019 reading list. I'm just going to stack all those books on my on my desk, pick them up one by one, and from memory, just describe the one thing I remember from each book. This is going to be kind of where the rubber meets the road, because this is one of the reasons I started this project, was to have a better recollection of the things that I read. So I'm going to be testing that. I'm not going to be referring to any notes, just looking at the cover of the book and recalling the one thing that I took away from that book. I think it'll be really uh, a fun episode for you to listen to as well, and and maybe uh, a way to get some ideas for, for books that you want to read to your own 2020 reading list. Until then, keep reading, keep learning, and keep listening. I'm out.